Morning. Morning. Hi. I got an applause in the West at the beginning, but not at the end. So I... <laughs> Maybe it'll be the same here. Um, <laughs> no. We'll see what happens at the end. That's the key thing. Um, you know when you're on an aeroplane and, um, and they say, um, you know, strap yourselves in, there's a bit of turbulence about to come. Um, I feel like what I want to bring this morning is quite a provoking and challenging message. Um, so if we had, if we, like, you know, maybe metaphorically, strap yourselves in, really. I just really believe that God wants to provoke us um, and challenge us this morning. Um, so um, if you're not up for that, um, well, the, the alternative is you, you, you're free to leave, but don't leave. <laughs> Hear what I've got to say first, and then you can choose to leave at the end. That's fine. Um, I, gen I genuinely believe that God wants to just uh, move us on and, and take us on this morning and, and deal with some issues in our hearts um, that can hold us back from full surrender um, and full obedience to Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, that's where we're going this morning. So if you've been with us over the past few weeks, You'll know that we're in, so you've got Genesis and then Exodus, so if you've got a Bible, um, love to encourage you to turn to that. We're in chapter 5 to 11 this morning. The key scriptures are going to come up um, on the screen as well. But if you've been with us, um, or if you know the story of Exodus, you'll know that God's people, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, maybe into the millions, are in slavery in the land of Egypt. Um, Joseph had gone and lived there uh, uh, during, the, uh, fam during the family. He invited all his family to go there. And over 400 years, they'd grown to be very numerically strong. But the kings of Egypt had forgotten about Joseph. And they had enslaved them and oppressed them as a people. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 1 of a people who are oppressed and enslaved. And there's no way out for them. And they start to cry out to God, God. Will you deliver us from this oppression? And you get this amazing passage in chapter 2 where it says, God heard, God saw, God knew, and God remembered. He heard their suffering and their cries. He saw what was going on. He remembered his covenant, and he knew what was going to happen next. And so God raises up this man, Moses, and he says, through Moses, I'm going to deliver my people out of slavery and into freedom. And in a kind of roundabout way, Moses very reluctantly ends up in Pharaoh's court, ready to challenge him. He doesn't want to go. He tries whatever he can to get out of it. He eventually, God says, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron with you. And even we'll, we'll see this morning, there's a couple of points. He goes, God, oh, did you really have to send me? Seriously? Couldn't you have sent someone else? And what we're going to see this morning as we get this moment where the showdown between Pharaoh and Moses is taking place, we're going to see that the gods of the ages are fake and powerless, and only Yahweh, the God who is I am, the only true God, can deliver his people out of slavery and into freedom. And you see, as we pick up the story in chapter 5, we are the stages set for this almighty battle. At a human level, between this man Moses and this man Pharaoh, but at a much deeper level as well, between God and the gods of the ages, between good and evil. You see, Pharaoh and Egypt actually represent and epitomize the pattern of human rebellion that has been the case since Genesis chapter 3. Egypt has become like the new Babylon of Genesis 
chapter 11. It so set itself up against the purposes of God and against the kingdom of God. It's like the archetype of evil. And what is happening in the story is not God doesn't like Pharaoh. It's like the whole nation of Egypt has set itself up and redefined good and evil. And it's so set itself up against the purposes of God that God says judgment is coming upon this land. You have set yourself up against the purposes of God and you've built your wealth and your security off the back of oppressing and abusing the people of God. And judgment is coming upon you, Egypt, because it set itself up as the archetype of evil. This is not just a battle between a man and a man. This is good versus evil. This is Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt. And that's the stage that's set in this showdown that we're about to uh, encounter this morning. And God says, I am going to deliver you from the gods of the age. I am going to deliver you from slavery and into freedom. I will do it, not through your own efforts. I will be the one who will set you free and deliver you. You're enslaved. You can't unslave yourself. You can't deliver yourself. I will do that. I will be the one who will set you free and deliver you. So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. (coughs) Unsurprisingly, we can't read all of chapters 5 to 11 today. So I'd encourage you to go and read it in your own devotion and in small groups as well. We're going to pick up key bits through the story. So chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle or lazy. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. Just want to stop there for a moment. In verse 1 of this chapter, thus says the Lord, right here, thus says Pharaoh. This is the confrontation that's happening right now. Pharaoh's saying, I don't respect God. Thus says Pharaoh. I'm in charge around here. What Pharaoh is doing this moment is he's defying himself against the Lord God Almighty. Thus says the Lord. Who is this Lord that I should obey him? Thus says Pharaoh. You're going to go work harder. And you're going to make bricks without straw. I'm asserting my authority over your people, God. I'm setting myself up against the purposes of God. That's what's happening 
right here. Pharaoh is asserting his own independence from God. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know him, and I don't care about him, and I will not let your people go. In fact, thus says me, go and work harder, you lazy people. Go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will be the stage is set here. The showdown is happening right here, right now. God, I'm going to deliver you. Pharaoh, not a cat in hell's chance am I going to let you go. No chance are you going. And in fact, because you've come to me, I'm going to make you work even harder. He increases their slavery. And poor Moses, I mean, at this point, God says, go and and I'll deliver you. He goes, and the first encounter doesn't look like it goes too well for him. Have you ever stepped out for God and you've gone, ah, that didn't go too well. That was a bit of a car crash. And Moses goes to God, me, you haven't even done what you said you were going to do. And God says this beautiful response in chapter 6. Now you shall see what I will do. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Chapter 6. I am the Lord. He says, I establish my covenant with my fathers. I've heard the groaning of the people. I've remembered my covenant. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. At the beginning of chapter 6, you get this amazing first nine or ten verses where 17 times God uses the word I. I will deliver you. I am the Lord your God. I am the savior of this people. Do you know what? We are powerless to save ourselves. Christian this morning, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, it is not because you were cleverer than anybody else. It's because God has come and delivered you out of the domain of darkness and into his glorious light. He is the deliverer, lest we think that we are particularly clever and we can deliver ourselves. God is the one who comes and breathes upon us and sets us free. That's the promise that is happening right here in chapter 6. And Moses is crying out, come on God. And God's like, I'm remembered my covenant and I'm going to deliver you. I am faithful to my promises. And maybe right now you're in a season of life and you just think, God, you haven't come through for me. I thought you were going to come through. Where are you? Go and read chapter 6. Go and read it. It's the Lord who is your deliverer. And it's the Lord who's with you. I will be with you is the promise to to Moses, isn't it, in chapter 4. I will be with you. I am who I am. And I will be with you. And then midway through chapter 6, we get this very strange bit where the, the sort of story stops. You just get the kind of the families of Israel, of Moses and Aaron. I just want to encourage you in your small groups this week, think about why that is. I'm just going to leave that hanging. Why does God, in the middle of this story, decide to stop and tell a, tell a family history? Question mark. You can think about that for yourselves. We're going to pick up the story again in uh, chapter 7, because this is when God starts to reveal how he is going to set his people free. Chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. How's God going to deliver them? He's going to bring judgment through signs and wonders that we know are the ten plagues that God brings upon the land of Egypt. And this morning we're going to look at the first nine, and then next week Rob's going to pick up on the tenth, on the whole subject of the Passover and the death of the firstborn and all that. We're looking at the first nine plagues. plagues. We need to understand this expression where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Do you know, there's a, you could go, well, hold on a minute. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then he judges him for it. Isn't that a bit unfair? Isn't, isn't, isn't Pharaoh just a pawn in God's game, in God's great big chess game? Isn't Pharaoh just an innocent man who, who God says, well, I'll hard, first I'll harden your heart, and then I'll send judgment upon your people? Isn't that a little bit unfair? There's a question there we need to think through and understand, because it's a pretty big theme through these chapters. In fact, 14 times in, through the period of the plagues, God says, or the, the, the phrase is used, either Pharaoh's heart grew hard, or Pharaoh hardened his own heart, or God hardened his heart. So we need to try and understand that a little bit, to try and understand what is going on here. And across the 14 times that God, that this expression about Pharaoh's heart being hardened is used, eight of those, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and six of those, God hardens his heart. What is happening here is there's a duality of human and divine agency working together. So Pharaoh comes, he hardens his own heart, and God only confirms that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And he gets to the point where he says, Pharaoh, your heart is so hardened, your heart is so against the purposes of God, that's it. There's a point of no return for Pharaoh. And we're just going to watch um, a minute of a video by the Bible Project guys, because in one minute and 20 seconds... They absolutely nailed this explanation. That would take me about 10 minutes to do. Between God Here we go. And Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people. You want a summary of Bible books and Bible topics. The Bible Project guys are absolutely amazing, and their illustrations are so good. Um, so <clears throat> what's happening here is Pharaoh, in the first five plagues, he hardens his own heart, and eventually God gets to the point of saying, there's a point of no return, Pharaoh. I'm hardening your heart from this point. And there's a duality happening here. C.S. Lewis, 
um, put it like this. He said, when you get a, two drops of rain on a window pane, whoever can tell which drop goes towards the other. And eventually they merge together. You've got the human and the divine agency working together. And eventually the end result is that Pharaoh's heart is so hardened that there's no return for him. There's no way back for him. And that's a really important way of reading it and our attention to these nine plagues. The point of the plagues is not a memory test on a pub quiz. I remember going to a pub quiz once and someone, and it was like, what's the fourth plague? And they were like, ow, you're religious. What do you know? I was like, oh, no. Is it flies? Is it frogs? Oh, man. And they're like, I thought you were supposed to know the Bible. In fact, the other day, oh, this is a confession moment, right? Sarah and I were in bed and we were like, we, we couldn't remember the name of the 12 disciples. <laughs> the, the point of the, the, point of the, it's not a memory test, right? I did feel a bit embarrassed, I have to say. So if you can't remember the name of the 12 disciples, you're in good company. If you can, you're far more holy and spiritual than I am. I feel a bit embarrassed to admit it, really, but hey, I love you guys and you know me anyway. It's not a memory test. It's not a, oh, yeah, I can remember it's that and that and then that and that and that. It is really interesting, though, that you can track the progression of the plagues. And I want to encourage you in small groups to do that this week. You track how they progress in terms of uh, their severity, their intensity, their impact. They progress in terms of who is affected. It's really interesting that after the third plague, there's a differentiation between uh, who gets affected. So the first three plagues, it's everyone. After that, it's only the Egyptians. Why is that? After the second plague, they cannot replicate the plagues, the Egyptian magicians. The first two plagues, the Nile and and the frogs, the blood and the frogs, they can replicate. After that, they can't. There's also an interesting uh, part of it about how Pharaoh's advisors respond. So in the third plague, Pharaoh's advisors go, this is the finger of God. They start to recognize that this is actually God at work. And Pharaoh's advisors, goes, oh, get out, no chance. By the eighth plague with the locusts, Pharaoh's advisors are going, please, would you just let these guys go? They recognize the hand of God. And Pharaoh's like, no chance. I'm not letting these guys go. So dig into that. Understand why is it they're progressing? How are they progressing through? Each of the plagues is deliberately designed and sent to show that one of the Egyptian gods is fake and powerless against the one true God, Yahweh. So the Egyptians worshipped over a hundred gods. They had gods for everything. And God comes along and he says, you think that God is powerful? I'm going to show that I am the true God over your gods. I'm going to show them to be fake and powerful and unable to deliver you. Only through me, Yahweh, can you be delivered. That's what's happening here. It's not just some random sequence of events like God's like, oh, that'll do, that'll do. He's saying, you think, Egyptians, that your gods are powerful. I'm going to show you that I'm Yahweh. I am who I am. At your name, the mountains tremble. You know, we sing that song, don't we? At your name, Yahweh, Yahweh, your Lord over all the earth. He's deliberately showing the Egyptians your gods are fake and powerless, and they're a sham. But Yahweh is the true deliverer, and he's sovereign and he's all-powerful. Let's just look at a couple of these to help us think it through. So the first plague, the Nile was turned to blood. That's the first plague. You see, Egypt, if you know anything about your geography, the Nile is pretty important in the land of Egypt for its security, its economy, everything. They relied wholly upon the Nile for the Nile. 
that it would flood, that it would produce crop, etc., etc. But their main god was this guy called Happy. We got him? Yeah, there he is. There's Happy. Not Happy as in, you know, um, H-A-P-P-Y, H-A-P-I. They worshipped Happy. And Happy was there to try and provide fullness of life. If you worshipped Happy, the god of the Nile, he would provide for you fullness of life. Life would be good and full and you'd be satisfied. And, you know, in that way, the deepest desires of your heart would be accomplished. And God comes along and he says, this God is powerless. Do you want to know where fullness of life comes from? It comes from knowing Yahweh. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. He exposes this God to be powerless and pathetic. And he says, I am the one through whom fullness of life comes, not through worshipping happy. We then get the second plague where frogs cover the whole land. And there, there was a frog god, we've got him as well, called Heket. <coughs> he too was a god of the Nile. But if you wanted to be fruitful in life, if you wanted children, if you wanted to be successful in business, if you wanted to leave a legacy in life, you'd go to this guy. He would deliver you the things that you needed in life. And God says, you think you can get fruitfulness from this guy? I'm going to show him to be powerless and fake, because where does fruitfulness come? It comes from knowing God. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Fruitfulness in the kingdom of God comes from knowing him and not from worshipping Heket. Heket is fake and powerless in the face of Yahweh. We get the third plague. God shows his power over Geb, who's the god of the earth, where he produces a plague of gnats across the land. He shows that he's the god over Apis, who's the god of economic success, by killing the livestock. He thinks, you want to be successful economically? You worship Apis, the kind of cow-like god? I'm going to show him to be powerless against Yahweh. You want to know where success comes from? It comes from knowing Jesus Christ, not from worshipping Apis. He comes and he shows he's God over Isis, who's the God of medicine, through boils. He comes and shows he's God over Seth, the God of storms, and over Nut, the God of sky, as he brings hail and locusts from the sky. And, and the ninth plague, he shows himself to be God over Ra, who's the sun god in Egypt where he brings darkness upon the land. There's an amazing way that the, the, that the Bible writers... Have you ever been somewhere where you could feel the darkness? Even now, I'm like, you know, you can feel the... You feel it in your body. It's not just a, oh, it's a bit dark around here. It's like you feel the darkness. It's oppressive. This is really interesting that in that plague, the, the God's people were surrounded by light. If you want to think about that a bit further, go to, go to the book of John. Look how John compares darkness and light. Compare that to this ninth plague. God shows he's God over Ra, the sun god. Through Moses and Aaron, God shows his power and his victory over the gods of the age. He shows them to be powerless and fake, and only Yahweh, the true God, can deliver them. That's what's happening in these plagues. And do you remember in chapter 5 where, where Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's response is this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, I'll tell you who this Lord is. He's God over the sky. He's God over the waters. He's God over the earth. He's God over all. 
He's the one who calls out dust from the earth and gnats rise. He's the one who, who spoke and the blood turned to Nile. Awe and wonder that he's the God of the universe, that he speaks and a hundred billion galaxies are formed. You could do a whole preach on the fact that he is, that as he speaks, wow, these gods are powerless, but when Yahweh speaks, awe and wonder should rise up within us. What a God who is powerful and sovereign and he's God over the earth and he's God over the sky and he's God over our lives and he's God over all. You might be sat there thinking, oh, that's nice. You know, God's God over, you know, Hecate and happy or whatever. <coughs> what on earth does that have to do with the Western world? What on earth does that have to do with living in the UK in 2020? Why do we care so much about a few gods? Haven't we moved on? Haven't we moved on from worshipping Happy and Hecate and, and Ra and Geb? Aren't we a bit more enlightened than that as a society? We, don't long, we no longer worship gods anymore. We don't bow the knee to Happy anymore, do we? That's what we think. And actually, at a societal level, it wouldn't take long for you to go, and people would be like, what a bunch of mugs for worshipping these gods? What a bunch of idiots? Why are they worshipping those? We don't do that anymore. We know better. And society would like to tell us that they no longer, there's no longer any issue of worship. But the reality is, we are all made to worship, and we all worship someone or something. You think there's not gods of our age, the God of comfort, the God of money, the God of individuality, the God of freedom of expression, God of sex and sexuality? Do you think they're not gods of our age? Absolutely, they're gods of our age because they are worshipped, because people think that by coming to those things, they find meaning and purpose and fulfillment and hope. And therefore, ultimately, you bow down to the to, to the God of comfort. If I get enough comfort in life, then I will be fine and happy. And I'll, effectively, you're worshipping the God of happy. If I get enough things, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be okay. That's a God of our age, friends. And these gods promise much and deliver little. They promise freedom, but they actually enslave us. They promise fullness of life, but they rob us. And before we get into um, kind of culture bashing, oh yeah, isn't culture terrible? There's something about this message where we need to turn and look at ourselves. And this is where you might need to strap yourselves in, guys, because this is where I feel like I want to challenge and provoke us to consider our own lives and to consider our response to Yahweh. We may think, I don't, I don't worship the gods of any age. I worship Yahweh. But I think the, the purpose of this story is partly not to make us think Pharaoh is the pantomime. Ouch, am I a bit like Pharaoh? You know, as I've read this this week, whew, I'm more like Pharaoh than I care to believe sometimes in how I respond to God. I'm more like him. And I think this passage actually serves as a warning to us to not harden our hearts like Pharaoh did. You know, a bit later in the Bible, in Psalm 95, God, God warns his people, the Israelites, do not harden your hearts. And that warning is repeated in Hebrews 4. And that warning is for us. Do not harden your hearts, but surrender to me. And I just want to look at how Pharaoh 
responds. And this is really, I just want to, just for a moment, speak to those of us in the room who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because there's something, if we're not careful, that we can very subtly replace Yahweh for worshipping gods of the age. And what God wants to do is he wants to show them to be fake and powerless, and only he can deliver us. Let's just look at Pharaoh's response to the plagues a moment. When the Nile is turned to blood, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And the Egyptians dug another Nile along the Nile for water to drink. In other words, I'm not surrendering. I'll find another way, thanks God. You can't tell me in this room that some of you are not bowing down to the God of comfort and economic success. And you're feeding the more monster. If I have a bit more, then, and I get comfortable in life, then I'll be okay. Or you're building for yourself this big retirement pot of gold. When I get to 65 and I hit the magic retirement age, then I'll be comfortable and satisfied in life. And you get what you want. Or God, if I only have a partner, or only I have children, then I'll be satisfied. And you get those things. And you realize there's actually a void. Because actually we're worshiping the God of happy, who we think brings fullness of life. And God says, only through me can you have fullness of life. And do you know what the real tragedy is? And the real warning from this first plague is this. Rather than surrender, the Egyptians dig another trench and say, no thanks, I'll make another way. I'll find another lane. I still feel dissatisfied. So you think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll buy a puppy. Maybe that'll do the trick. What is it about people buying puppies? There is something. I love dogs, right? But sometimes people go, my life isn't going too well. If I buy a puppy, then maybe I'll be happy. Nothing against puppies because I grew up with dogs. I'm just saying. Or if I take up golf and I get the nicest golf set, and maybe that point, then I'll be happy. Digging another trench. Dig another trench. I'll make my own way, thanks God. I'm not interested in surrender. That's the true tragedy when God warns us. When we allow our hearts to become hardened to him. When frogs cover the land, Pharaoh says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. In other words, God, if you do this, then I will surrender to you. Has anyone ever done that? Are we doing that with God now? God, if you deliver on this issue, then I'll bow the knee. God, if you give me that promotion at work, then I'll be more generous. And then you get the promotion at work, and you kind of go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Wow, we have to just be so aware of our hearts in this, guys. And actually, in doing that, we can harden our hearts. When hail reigns over the land, Pharaoh said, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He looks like he's actually sorry, finally. He looks like he's actually kind of going, oh, I've done, I've done some bad stuff. Plead with the Lord, for there have been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. God comes through. Does he really repent? No chance. Maybe for some of you, 
There's areas of your life, of sin in your life, that you know God wants to deal with. And you go, yeah, God, I've sinned. But it's not really godly repentance. I can tell you about a time in my own life. I used to go to church every Sunday. I was stuck in the same pattern of sin, the same addictive behavior. Every week I would go to church and I'd cry and I'd feel really guilty. God, I won't ever do that again. It wasn't repentance, friends. It was what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which brings life. And it took a moment in this church 10, 15 years ago for God to break in and soften my heart and lead me to true repentance. And for us, sometimes it can be so easy to go and go, yeah, God, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then life carries on and you realize, actually, you're, a, you're not repentant. You just feel guilty that you did something bad. And God says, oh, no, that brings life. And do you know, when I was stuck in that pattern of sin, I was going to church, God, I'm sorry, I actually believe I was hardening my heart towards God. And it took God to break in in a moment and soften my hard heart and set me free. And that's what God wants to do with us this morning. I did say none of you might be clapping at the end. This is just proving my point. I'm not here to condemn, but I'm here to provoke do you know, the invitation of the Bible to be a follower of Jesus is come and die to yourself. Come and lose your life in order to find it. Come and surrender all to Jesus Christ. I was listening to a song this morning that said this, you said, if I lose my life, then I will find it. The paradox of the kingdom of God is in the laying down of our lives to Jesus Christ, we find true life. We find life as it was meant to be. As we learn complete surrender and obedience to him, that's when true life comes. The call this morning is do not harden your heart, but surrender yourself to him this morning. (laughs) But here's the good news. Here's the hope that we have. In this story, Moses represents Jesus, who has come to liberate his people out of slavery and into freedom, out of darkness and into light, out of death and into light and into life. Jesus wants freedom for you today, and he has come to bring you into a place of freedom. You can break free this morning from any area of life that is holding you back. Any sense of half-hearted obedience, any sense of wrong priorities in life, you can do that this morning by surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can deliver you from the gods of the age. Only Jesus can set you free and liberate you. And in that surrender, you will find life and meaning and purpose. And here's the message of the gospel. You can come to Jesus now, irrespective of how you walk through the door this morning. Whether your life is in a mess, whether you think you're not good enough, whether you think you failed over and over again, you are invited to come this morning because the message of the gospel is this. It's not about you. 
It's not about your performance. It's not about whether you're good enough. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ hung on a cross, died and rose again to forgive all of our iniquities and sin. And that through him, we are reconciled, redeemed, set free and liberated from the things that hold us back. And it's, we come to him and we find grace and mercy in time of need. We don't have to hold back and think, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and you'll find grace and freedom and mercy and liberty and forgiveness because I am faithful and just to forgive you all your iniquities, all your wrong priorities, all of your rebellion, all the areas where in life where you feel like you mess up over and over and over again. He says, come to me. Come running into the arms of a loving father this morning. That is the invitation of the gospel. He's faithful to take all of your sin. He's covered it all on the cross once and for all time, the writer of Hebrews says. Don't harden your hearts. Don't sit there thinking, I know there is this area of my life, but I'm not quite sure I want to go there. Respond to his grace and his invitation today. Come running. There's that old song there. Come running, come running, come running to the mercy seat. Come running into his loving arms this morning. He loves you and he's, he's chosen you and he wants to liberate you from anything in life which will hold you back. Jesus has come to set you free and only in surrender to him can you know freedom and purpose. And if you're here this morning and you don't know everybody in life is looking for fil- fulfillment and fullness of life. And I want to invite you this morning, if you don't know Jesus... It can only, for fullness of life can only come by surrendering to the one who knows you and loves you and created you and is for you and can deliver you. Only he can deliver you from the emptiness of your heart by responding to the good news of Jesus. Mark, are you happy just to come up and just play? We're going we're gonna to respond now. I realize that... Um, there's some heart work that God wants to do in us this morning. And I'd like to invite us, if you're, if you're comfortable and able, just to stand. You, you don't have to. You feel free to sit and just be before God. It's up to you entirely. But just if, you want, if you're comfortable standing, just being before the Lord. I believe God wants to do business with us this morning.